Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today we're going to talk about a technology we're seeing a lot of in organizations, that is Docker containers and Kubernetes. Now, this episode is going to be an overview of what they are and, and how they work, and perhaps in a future episode, we'll talk about how to secure them. Now, remember, as a CISO, it's really hard to secure technology you don't understand, so please listen to the full show so you can improve your technical CISO tradecraft on these two important technologies. As always, please follow us on LinkedIn and make sure you subscribe to our podcast and share with your colleagues on social media so they can increase their understanding as well. And now, a word from our sponsor. Did you know that over 63% of cyber breaches are caused by third parties? Not surprising when many are still using ineffective custom questionnaires. CyberGRX uses a modern approach, leveraging outside-in scanning, threat intelligence, MITRE attack, coupled with comprehensive data analytic capabilities to provide a 360-degree view of your third-party cyber risk posture. This visibility into your complete third-party ecosystem enables you to identify the weakest links in your supply chain, as well as those that are the most vulnerable to cyber attacks like ransomware. Designed and built by CISOs, CyberGRX is the market's first and largest third-party cyber risk exchange. Visit them on CyberGRX.com. Well, thanks again for being our listeners, and now let's get back to the show. First of all, let's kind of take a trip through time on a brief history of computing. When I first did my university degree way back when, we worked on mainframes. We submitted batch jobs on punch cards, and we got results back on green and white fan-folded paper, and you had to wear a white lab coat with four colors of pens in your pocket to enter the computer room. And we, I worked on IBM 370-145, and as a result, that was kind of our initial introduction for some of us older folks into computing. Later on, though, we had mini computers, and that era of mini computers pretty much went from 1965 to 1985, and they were inexpensive, usually under $25,000 and had their own I.O. interfaces, like its own printer, wow, with at least 4,096 words of memory, capable of running higher-level language like Fortran or BASIC. Now, I learned on a PDP-8 at Northwestern, where the introductory price back then of 18500 in the 70s is equivalent to over $150,000 today. In 1975, the MITS Altair 8800 ushered in the era of microcomputers. 8-bit, single-user, simple machines. I actually built one of those. Back uh, then, our high school computer club formed a, an association with several other computer clubs in the western New York area. And we formed a group called the Student Cybernetic League, or SCYL, or SKILL for short. And we operate out of the basement of a church in downtown Buffalo. We had a vault that was full of old nide track tapes and all kinds of stuff. We had, I think, the largest flatbed plotter in the eastern United States. It was donated to us. We never got it running, but in any case, we pooled our money. I was a delivered newspapers, and from that, I was able to go ahead, essentially, and we chipped in the 300-some-odd dollars, and we bought the kit. And when we assembled that kit... And it was a kit, by the way, resistors, diodes, you know, just literally had to solder everything into place. We tested it and we checked it. And we finally got all plugged in and working and ran. And it was kind of neat because now we had our own computer. We programmed it. I remember we had uh, one gentleman on our team, Mark Merritt. He ended up going on to MIT, but he built an interface so we could program it instead of with the switches on the front, 01011100 load, 00101100 load. 
it was an old octal type thing is he had it with a little keyboard. Uh, Mark went on the next year. I think he won the junior achievement award of the year for the best invention. It was a $1 circuit tester. Uh, this is basically a couple wires with a neon light uh, poured into a test tube with some resin. In any case, kind of lost track of these folks. Love to catch up, see how they went. But uh, what came out of that, though, is Bill Gates had seen one of these Altair 8800s, looked at it and said, Microsoft. And Steve Jobs looked at it and said, Apple. And we looked at it and said, hmm, I'll take it to a school assembly and make it play music. Yeah. Um, see what vision is? Okay, I know we're supposed to be talking about containers, but I, I always like throwing a little C story here or there. Uh, 40 years ago, this month, in August of 81, IBM introduced a personal computer. It's called a Model 5150. It had an 8 bit 8088 processor, and it licensed a version of BASIC, an operating system, a little startup called Microsoft. It featured a whopping 16K of memory, it had no hard drives. And then client-server computing became the norm in the 90s as networking became more feasible, resources were often hosted on servers, work was being done on general-purpose clients, and we saw an explosion of vendors there. Cloud computing for the masses began in July of 2002 when Amazon created Amazon Web Services, what we know as AWS today, and the well-known Simple Storage Service, S3 Buckets, and Elastic Compute Cloud, EC2. These debuted in March of 2006. Amazon was joined by Microsoft Azure in 2010, IBM Smart Cloud in 2011, Oracle Cloud in 2012, and the Google Compute Engine in 2013. As a result, we've seen cloud computing become a dominant factor in our computing environment today with, of course, all the security risks that come as well. Now, virtual machines, or VMs, date back to the 1960s, but became much more common in the last decade. A host would operate a hypervisor, essentially an interface for a software version of an entire operating system, and then in that, it could run their applications. Type 1 hypervisors run on the bare metal. For example, VMs that exist in the cloud. They don't have a machine that the operator can run Excel, and then, oh, by the way, it's running virtual machines for the customers. This is dedicated. Type 2 hypervisor run on top of an existing OS, like VMware or Hyper-V in Windows 10. However, to host an application this way, an entire virtual operating system is required, meaning that VMs tend to have a lot of overhead. Now enter the world of containers, the next step in the evolution of computing. And I'm going to start with a tool called Docker, which was introduced in 2013. But as we'll see, it isn't the only solution available. But it's probably the most well-known. So let's start with the definition. According to Docker, a container is a standard unit of software that packages up code and all its dependencies so the application runs quickly and reliably from one computing environment to another. A Docker container image is a lightweight, standalone, executable package of software that includes everything needed to run an application, code, runtime, system tools, system libraries, and settings. That's a quote from the Docker site. So therefore, container, we're starting to think, is it's packaged up, you've got your code, and then the interfaces that allow you to then go ahead and make that code run. See, containers solve a key computing problem, portability. If you think about the concept of shipping containers, they eventually standardized how multimodal transportation can work. If you've ever seen a truck or a train or a cargo ship, 
The standard is a TEU or a 20 foot equivalent unit. And that's defined as eight foot wide, eight and a half feet high and 20 feet long. There's also an FEU or a 40 foot equivalent unit, which is well double the length. And if you ever see these truck going to a train, to a cargo ship, back to a truck, to a train or whatever, that's typically how we make sure these things fit because they're all a standard size. Remember the cargo vessel ever given that got stuck in the Suez Canal? It has a capacity of 20,124 TEUs or 20 foot equivalents, although it only had about 18,300 when she got stuck. Well, prior to standardized shipping containers, you could add crates of all sizes and materials which meant packing a cargo ship was like playing a difficult game of Tetris. Things were hard to stack, boxes would break, you'd have damaged cargo. And to overcome this burden, the transportation industry made this durable container that could easily be ported between rail, shipping, and trucks. Standardized the size, made it easy for shipping to go faster, since you can optimize with a very given fixed format. Now, developers have experienced similar problems and also could benefit from a similar type of standardization solution. Imagine one developer building a software application on a Mac laptop and then handing it over to another developer who goes on a Windows machine. It doesn't run. The first developer says, not my problem, worked on my machine. <clears throat> and the problems also occurred numerous times between dev, test, and production environments. And to overcome this problem, kind of ask the question, what if there were a standardized way where if you build something, it would just work the same on any of these systems? And that's where the virtualization technologies start to come in. We can think of virtual machines standardizing this concept. We, we see it from programming languages like Java. You put a Java runtime on each machine and then everybody can run that application because the application is standardized, but the Java engine provides the interface, if you will, to the host system. And now we're seeing this in terms of Docker containers. Now that we kind of get a feel for a container, standard unit of software, packages up codes, let's define the concept of an image. Docker container images are really just a series of folders and files. These files and folders are usually separated into two layers, layer one being used by the applications and layer two by the binaries and libraries. That means you don't have to load an entire operating system into memory for every virtual machine, which is what we had to do in the VM world, and therefore containers tend to be a lot more efficient. The big turn to remember here is that an image is a file that's stored on a host machine. So an image is not running, whereas a container is a running image. So you download and save an image, but you run a container. And container images become containers at runtime and in the case of Docker containers, images become containers when they run on the Docker engine. Now, if we compare a containerized app to a virtual machine, we see that a virtual machine, we have the base operating system, which then has a hypervisor, at which point we will load a guest operating system, a virtual machine, and then run an application in there. That could take as much as two gigs of memory or more per guest operating system. Now, if I have multiple applications, each one of which needs its own guest operating system, you can start to see that it's really gonna fill up memory pretty quickly and it's not very efficient. I'm duplicating 
a lot of infrastructure. In a container world, we have the host operating system, which then is running the Docker engine. On top of that, we're going to have individual containers. These containers, as we said before, package up code with their dependencies so that the code, the runtime, the libraries are all together at once. And now the Docker host provides, if you will, the equivalent of whatever resource that particular app needs from an operating system. Now, instead of having to have one, two, three, four, five guest operating systems with all that overhead for one, two, three, four, five apps, I just have one Docker engine running app, 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 app. As you can start to see, this will scale very quickly, takes less memory, takes less compute, and therefore gives us a lot more flexibility. Now, the way that you specify what applications and binaries are installed in a Docker image is created by creating a file called a Docker file. Now, a Docker file is essentially a set of instructions that says, here's how to build the container image. And there's often four common commands in there. Although we're not going to be programming them in this podcast, it's kind of good to know how fairly basic this could be. The from command creates a layer from another Docker image. So if you used from Ubuntu 18.04, then you'd have an Ubuntu Docker image where you could easily then install packages with an apt-get. What I'm allowed to do then is here's, I'm going to say I'm going to build things in an Ubuntu environment. The copy command is going to add files to your Docker image. I might want to copy a certificate or a key file to a container image from your local machine. Then the run command is going to have some command line arguments you might run to first update patches with an apt-get update. Then you could run to install applications like apt-get install nginx. And then you could use run with other commands like wget if you wanted to pull files from your git repo. And then cmd or command specifies which command to run within the container. So what happens then is this Docker file, if you will, is a bit of a recipe that says, here's how we're going to go ahead and spin this thing up. Now, containers by themselves don't replace virtual machines. Rather, what they allow is an enterprise some flexibility in how they want to deploy their applications. Now, in some cases, a VM may be a better choice. For example, if you're a Windows 10 user and you want to run some legacy 16-bit applications, one way to do that is the built-in Hyper-V hypervisor and then just load up a Windows XP virtual machine. Uh, I do that. I still have some old 16-bit stuff that I like, and I miss XP. Now, if you go to SANS conference and want to play NetWars, in the past they provided a virtual machine image which you can hack away at to compete in the program. In this case, you really want an entire operating system, so a VM is a perfectly acceptable way to go. Sometimes, however, you just want to run some applications, and for that, a container can work just fine. Now, Docker can run on a number of operating systems, both Linux, like a CentOS, Debian, Fedora, Oracle Linux, SUSE, Ubuntu, and it could also run in Windows. And this flexibility is great because you don't have to worry about unique dependencies when a user would ordinarily complain, well, it works on my desktop. Why won't it work on my laptop? The idea here is if you can install the Docker engine on a system, the containers will run. Now, what does Docker look like? It's really kind of designed to run on the command line or a CLI, command line interface. Although pretty point-and-click interfaces are popular for end users, for developers, CLI is, CLI is usually just fine, even in Windows. Now, in Linux, 
the Docker system needs to run as root, meaning the traditional way to get programmed to run an elevated privilege is to preface it with a sudo command. Well, not having to do that every time or it seems to be a hassle, you know, how do we allow for that? And then one neat trick is to simply create a Unix group called Docker, add users to it, and afford the appropriate privileges to that group. And now, if you're a member of the group, you can run your Docker because it already has those capabilities. Of course, you want to limit who can go ahead and actually start those uh, Docker commands. The actual running of the applications can be left up to individual users, but if you're going to control that interface, yeah, you need to be in command. On Windows, it's a bit more straightforward, but note that first you have to enable BIOS-level hardware virtualization support. There's instructions on the Docker site how to do so. It's basically click this, click this, click this, and then reboot. And then you download the Docker installer from Docker Hub. Docker Hub is a repository for software. Then you decide whether you want to enable your Hyper-V features or maybe use something else called a WSL2 engine. And you know these details are probably a bit beyond this introductory episode, but the documentation will point you in the right direction if that ends up being a question for you. And then we install the Docker engine and the command line interface client along with some other components. You then have access to the Docker desktop, which would then appear in your start menu. Looks like a little blue whale logo with a bunch of containers on its back. Do a little bit of configuring for the documentation and voila, you're ready to run containers. Now, to get started, you can toggle which daemon you want the command line interface to talk to. One that runs a Linux container, and that's a default, or one that could run a Windows container. Now, if you think about it, we could go ahead and write apps in either one, but we don't want the dependency to be based upon the underlying machine. Therefore, whatever app I happen to write will run wherever I go, thanks to, if you will, the flexibility of this container approach. To run applications, you need a container engine, which is essentially a service that says how to run or orchestrate these services. Now, we usually refer to this as Docker engine, but it's said before, Docker is a brand name, kind of like Kleenex is a brand of tissue paper. And this engine or daemon is a persistent process that is going to manage containers, container objects, and then listens to requests that are sent via the engine API or application programming interface. Thus, if a developer runs a command like Docker run, they can take a container image and make it into a running container. Make it also run a command like Docker kill to stop a running container. Now, with regard to updating containers and things like that, containers tend to be ephemeral. I don't patch a running container. I basically go ahead, update the image, and then go ahead and kill the old container that's running and then upload the new image. So basically, it's sort of a like the little ticket that you get when you tear off when you go to the meat department, the grocery store. If you start writing all over your ticket and you mess it up, what do you need if you have to update it? Well, just throw it away and start with a new one. So this makes maintaining your systems a little bit easier because I don't have to chase down operating or running systems. I can just go ahead and patch the images, spin them back up again, and replace the old one. Now, running containers from the command line is sort of a nice, neat feature. And if you wanted to manage one or two containers, that works just fine. But what if you wanted to manage 100 or 1,000 yeah, good luck trying to do that from a command line. So Docker created an orchestration tool called Docker Compose. You can think of an orchestration tool as, a, for example, a conductor for a musical orchestra. 
the conductor says, hey, I need the brass instruments to do this. I need drums to do this. I need wind instruments to do this. Well, Docker Compose is going to go ahead and create a file that says, for example, I need a database to be open on this port. I need a database to mount this file path. I need a web application to be open on 443, network path to connect web app, and so on. Now, Docker isn't the only company to see the value of orchestrating a large number of containers. A couple other companies have also emerged. Mesos created Marathon, and Google created Kubernetes. Now, to keep the story simple, let's just say Google sort of won the war on container orchestration platforms, and we see the industry shifting to Kubernetes over the Docker Compose or Marathon. Kubernetes, commonly known as K8S, that is K and then eight letters and an S, is an open source orchestration framework for containerized applications that was born originally from the Google data centers. Now to make this happen, there's really two major parts to a Kubernetes cluster. A control plane that's gonna receive requests, schedule actions, and manage these controllers. And then a worker node that's gonna have containers, pods, kubelets, and cube proxies, which I'll define in a moment. And these follow, follow the guidance from the control plane. So let's start with a worker node and analyze these components. Well, a pod, you heard about that term just a moment ago, it's the smallest and simplest Kubernetes object. A pod represents a set of running containers on your cluster. A pod is typically set up to run a single primary container. It can also run optional sidecar containers that add supplementary features like logging, but pods are commonly managed by a deployment, which is a YAML specification file that states how a pod is configured. Now, YAML, Y-A-M-L, stands for YAML Ain't Markup Language, is a human-readable data serialization language. It's commonly used for config files and in applications where data is being stored or transmitted. Pods are groups of applications which are run in a shared context. That means that they're treated much like a group of applications on any single virtual machine or physical server in the past. And pods are the abstraction of this layer to provide a logical host, which is application-based rather than host-based. Thus, one container may run the database, one runs the application layer, and together they make one pod. Now, not every pod will contain multiple containers necessarily, but the potential is there to use a microservices architecture within that pod. Each of these pods needs a way to talk to the rest of the Kubernetes cluster, and each pod needs to be managed by Kubernetes to meet desired specifications. That means we're gonna to need to have something called a kubelet, K-U-B-E-L-E-T, in place. A kubelet is an agent that runs on each node in the cluster, and it makes sure that containers are running in a pod. The kubelet takes a set of pod specs that are provided through various mechanisms and ensures that the containers described in those pod specs are running when they're healthy. The kubelet doesn't manage containers which are not created by Kubernetes, so you want to have kind of a environment where you're controlling everything from one central um, orchestration tool. Now, each server, you can think of an EC2 instance or a server from Amazon that contains a kubelet also needs to have something known as a kube proxy, K-U-B-E proxy. A kube proxy is a network proxy that runs on each node in your cluster. Kube proxy maintains network rules on the nodes. 
You can also think of these as like a packet filter firewall. These network rules allow network communication to your pods from network sessions, either inside or outside of your cluster. Cube Proxy uses the operating system packet filtering layer if there is one and it's available. Otherwise, Cube Proxy just forwards the traffic itself. Well, now that we've talked about what runs on a worker node, such as an EC2 instance server, it could be a container, it could be a pod, it could be kubelet, cube proxy, we want to understand another key concept known as the control plane. This is the brains behind the orchestration, and it consists of four components, an API server, a scheduler, a controller manager, and an ETCD or an Etsy daemon. The API server, sometimes known as the Cube API server, tracks the state of all these cluster components and manages interaction between them. The API server is a component of the Kubernetes control plane that exposes the Kubernetes API, application programming interface. The API server is the front end for the Kubernetes control plane. Cube API server is designed to scale horizontally. That is to say, it can scale by deploying more instances. And you can run several instances of the API server and balance traffic among them. A scheduler, sometimes known as a cube scheduler, again, when I say cube, it's K-U-B-E, Kubernetes, right? Distributes unscheduled workloads across the available worker nodes. A scheduler is in the control plane and it's a control plane component that watches for newly created pods with no assigned node, selects a node for them to run on, and then makes that assignment. Think of, for example, if you've ever been to a bank or even at TSA sometimes when things are busy and somebody there is looking for the next available teller or the next available station, and everybody's waiting in the queue and says, okay, go to line three, go to line seven, etc." Essentially, the scheduler is matching up newly created pods that need to run, and then some node that's gonna go ahead and execute them. So factors that you take into account for scheduling decisions include your individual or collective resource requirements, hardware, software, policy constraints, uh, any specifications for what we call affinity or anti-affinity, like I want this type of capability or I don't. Data locality, I can only run in this particular area. I don't want my EU citizen data going outside of EU, things like that. Interworkload interference, all kinds of deadlines. There's a lot of things that schedulers can do. Scheduler essentially is gonna watch the pods and the virtual machines to check to see if the pod needs to be scheduled to VM and if the VM is going to be available. Uses primarily two different criteria. The first one's called a predicate. This is a hard constraint. For example, I need four gigs of memory to run. I need to have the equivalent of SSD storage and I have to have those capabilities. Well, some virtual machines don't have that much horsepower and they would be eliminated from consideration. Predicates are fixed. You got to meet the predicate. Now, priorities, instead of being hard constraints, are soft constraints. It would be really nice if blah, blah, blah. And now I can spreading these, these things, like if the app is spread across multiple machines, that would be really nice. But it's possible if there aren't any other virtual machines available, I might just have to run two instances on the same VM. Well, I say instance, I should say, you know, two of the containers. Instance is the term that we use for the virtual machine in the Amazon cloud. Again, sorry for trying to watch the terminology here, but important to keep track of that. Now the scheduler then filters the nodes by predicates, basically says, who do we disqualify? Who doesn't have the horsepower? Then they sort by priorities. What's your wish list? And then the top 
the number one node, the one that passes that list, is where the container gets scheduled. Now the controller manager, known as the cube controller manager, runs all the built-in controllers like node or replication controllers. Now in Kubernetes, controllers are control loops that watch the state of your cluster and then make a request changes where needed. Each controller tries to move the current cluster state closer to the desired state. So the controllers are watching the shared state of your cluster through the API server. Remember we talked about that, it's part of your control plane. Some controllers also run inside the control plane providing control loops that are core to the Kubernetes operations. For example, the deployment controller, the daemon set controller, the namespace controller, persistent volume controller, all these things run within the cube controller manager. And then the Etsy daemon is really just a key value store for all the cluster configuration data. Okay, that's kind of a lot of moving parts. And if you're new to containers, you might want to listen again to make sure these ideas are not just streaming by while you struggle to keep up. But, but let's take a recap and, and see what we've covered so far. A container is a special environment in which we can run an application that normally requires a complete operating system, but you don't want to ship that entire operating system with the application. Thus, we rely on a container engine to provide the interface to the operating system and its services and let the container include just the app with some connective tissue to plug into the hosting system. In addition, the nice thing is containers should run pretty much anywhere. They're not going to care about that underlying host operating system because the engine is going to act as that uh, common element. We can create containers that host a number of Linux environments or even Windows environments, meaning that when developers write their code, it can be tested in an environment that will be stable, even when the container is exported to a different host operating system. It's insulated from the host by the Docker software, which provides the app what it needs to run without any particular dependency on what was installed months or years ago as an operating system on that particular underlying device. And we can run multiple containers at the same time on a single device. It's kind of the idea, really. We gain a lot of efficiency. But trying to manage all of that from a command line is a bit of a challenge, to say the least. Thus, orchestration tools like Kubernetes allow us to arrange all of this at a higher level. So tools like schedulers can map images that need to be run to nodes that are available, and they meet minimum requirements. That's a pretty high-level summary, but ought to make sense in view, hopefully, of what we've talked about. If you take a look at the show notes, we've added a few links that'll help you see some of these concepts in visual form. Hopefully, this will give you a good start into the world of containers, and now you should be able to at least start thinking of how this might be used in your environment. And of course, talking to your coworkers to ensure that you use best practices to do it correctly and secure it properly. All right, a little bit shorter show today, but I just want to do an intro. So hopefully you found this time worthwhile. I'm G. Mark Hardy, and thanks again for listening. And please don't forget to subscribe and share your CISO tradecraft with your friends and fellow security professionals. Until next time, stay safe.